Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Friday, June 10th, and Saturday, the 11th, feature guest conductor James Gaffigan and violinist Lisa Batashvili. The program includes Saint-Saëns, the Bacchanal from Samson and Delilah, and with Lisa Batashvili, Saint-Saëns' introduction and Rondo Capriccioso, as well as Ernest Chanson's poem for violin and orchestra. After intermission, Mozorksky's A Night on Bald Mountain in the Reorchestration by Rimsky-Korsakov, and Tchaikovsky's Fantasy Overture, Romeo and Juliet. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Saint-Saëns' Introduction and Rondo Capriccioso, a work lasting about nine minutes. Like many composers who write concertos for instruments they do not play, Saint-Saëns welcomed the advice of the great Spanish violinist Pablo de Sarasate when he composed music for solo violin. They met when Sarasate was just 15 years old and Saint-Saëns 24 and at the very beginning of his long and productive career. Sarasate, equally talented and audacious, had approached Saint-Saëns hoping that he would compose something for him to play. Fresh and young as spring itself, Saint-Saëns remembered the violinist, the faint shadow of a mustache scarcely visible on his upper lip. He was already a famous virtuoso. As if it were the easiest thing in the world, he had come quite simply to ask me to write a concerto for him. Saint-Saëns, like Bruch, Lalo, Joachim, Vignovsky, and Dvorak in the coming years, was flattered and charmed by Sarasate's request and agreed at once. The first work he composed for Sarasate, completed that same year, 1859, was his A Major Violin Concerto. Four years later, he wrote his Introduction and Rondo Capriccioso, a brief work with a reflective opening, almost like an operatic recitative, and a dazzling aria full of fireworks tailor-made to show off Sarasate's famed technique. It immediately became standard virtuoso fare, and after Georges Bizet arranged it for violin and piano, it became mandatory for any talented and daring violinist. Sarasate went on to enjoy a long career as one of the greatest of romantic virtuosos. He lived until 1908 and was the first important violinist to make commercial recordings and among the most successful of musicians. He had his portrait painted by James Abbott McNeil Whistler. He even tried his hand at composing. His fantasy on themes from Bizet's Carmen is now a staple of the repertory. Program notes by Philip Husher on Saint-Saëns' Introduction and Rondo Capriccioso. And now on to Mussorgsky's A Night on Bald Mountain, a work lasting about 12 minutes. When Mussorgsky died at the age of 42, he left his work in a shambles, with many of his compositions unfinished. Of his seven operas, only Boris Godunov was complete, and so it was left to others to make his talent known. Only minutes after Mussorgsky was pronounced dead, Rimsky-Korsakov declared that he would take on the task of overseeing Mussorgsky's musical estate, which to him meant not only collecting and organizing sketches and manuscripts, but also completing his friend's work. Although Rimsky-Korsakov acknowledged Mussorgsky's genius, full of so much that was new and vital, he felt, not always with justification, that much of the music needed to be edited and corrected. 
Although Rimsky-Korsakov rightly considered the completion of Mussorgsky's final opera, Kovanchina, as the most important of his assignments, little of Mussorgsky's other music escaped his editorial hand. And so, like Kovanchina and the piano set pictures at an exhibition, Mussorgsky's only major orchestral piece, A Night on Bald Mountain, was introduced in a version concocted by Rimsky-Korsakov. For many years, Mussorgsky toyed with the idea of writing an opera based on Gogol's story, St. John's Eve. In the summer of 1867, when he visited his brother's country estate, he decided instead to write an orchestral piece about the satanic revelry that takes place on St. John's Eve. The composer summarized the action this way, Subterranean sounds of supernatural voices appearance of the spirits of darkness followed by that of satan himself glorification of satan and celebration of the black mass the sabbath revels at the height of the orgies the bell of the village church sounding in the distance disperses the spirits of darkness daybreak the score led several lives. Rimsky-Korsakov claimed that Mussorgsky originally composed it for piano and orchestra, and then decided to rework it for orchestra alone. In characteristic fashion, Mussorgsky later reused it as an interlude in his comic opera Sorotinsky Fair. Rimsky-Korsakov was particularly cavalier with A Night on Bald Mountain, and the piece he conducted in 1886 was largely of his own design, loosely based on Mussorgsky's manuscripts. I selected out of the material left upon the composer's death everything that was the best and most suited for making of it a well-coordinated whole, he wrote in the preface to his edition. This score is then one man's view of A Night on Bald Mountain, but with his unsurpassed ear for demonic color and sinister atmosphere, Rimsky-Korsakov made from Mussorgsky's tale a ghost story of irresistible and enduring power. Program notes by Philip Husher on Mussorgsky's A Night on Bald Mountain. And now on to Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet, Fantasy Overture After Shakespeare. The performance time, around 21 minutes. No other play by Shakespeare has inspired as many composers as Romeo and Juliet. Throughout the Romantic era in particular, the drama held an enormous and sometimes nearly fatal attraction. After Berlioz saw Romeo and Juliet at a Paris theater and fell desperately in love with Harriet Smithson, who played Juliet, he announced his intention to marry the actress and to write a dramatic symphony, now known as the Symphonie Fantastique, based on the play, and did both within a decade. The marriage was a mistake, however, and they later separated, but the symphony is one of his greatest works. More than 20 operas have been written on Romeo and Juliet, including Bellini's I Capoletti e I Montichi, with a mezzo-soprano as Romeo in the tradition of trouser rolls, and Gounod's enduring treatment, with the ending rewritten so that the lovers die at the same moment, singing in unison. Bernstein's urban West Side story suggests that the fascination with this subject hasn't waned in our own time. And Prokofiev's 1940 ballet is now recognized as a 20th century classic, although the composer originally wrote a happy ending because he couldn't imagine how dying lovers could dance. But none of these works has surpassed the popularity of Tchaikovsky's Fantasy Overture. 
The Russian composer, Mili Balakirev, apparently first suggested the play to Tchaikovsky as early as the summer of 1869. He continued to push the subject, and when Tchaikovsky wavered, he prodded him. In a letter dated October 6, 1869, he offered literary observations, suggested general guidelines for treating the subject, and even dictated four measures of music to open the work. Before Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet was finished, and it was another ten years before it reached its final form, Balakirev had approved and rejected a number of themes, recommended a new introduction in the style of a Listian chorale, and presented his preferred tonal scheme, based on a fondness for keys with five flats and two sharps. Surprisingly, Tchaikovsky found his own voice with this work. Romeo and Juliet, a fantasy overture after Shakespeare, is his first masterpiece. The original version, composed in just six weeks, was performed in March 1870 with Nikolai Rubinstein conducting. A new version, completed that summer, incorporated Balakirev's idea of a slow chorale at the beginning. It was played in St. Petersburg in early 1872. Although Tchaikovsky and Belakirov had a falling out that year, Tchaikovsky continued to turn to Shakespeare for inspiration. In 1873, he fashioned a symphonic fantasy from The Tempest, and late in 1876, he complained of losing sleep over Othello, which he was determined to turn into an opera. He dropped the project early in the new year, two years before Verdi and Boito first conceived their Othello. Hamlet was the last Shakespearean subject to interest Tchaikovsky. He composed a fantasy overture on it in 1888 and three years later contributed incidental music to a staging of the play in St. Petersburg. In 1878, while he was recuperating from his failed marriage at his brother Modeste's house, Tchaikovsky turned to Romeo and Juliet and was struck by its potential as a great operatic subject. One night that May, when Modeste and Sasha went to the theater to see Romeo and Juliet, Tchaikovsky stayed home, put his nieces and nephews to bed, and then read the Shakespeare play for himself. Of course, I'll compose Romeo and Juliet, he wrote to Modeste from Brailov in June, excited by the prospect of writing a new opera. It will be my most monumental work. It now seems to me absurd that I couldn't see earlier that it was predestined, as it were, to set this drama to music. But instead of writing an opera, Tchaikovsky put the finishing touches on the fantasy overture two years later. It's this last version that is now regularly played. The idea of composing the opera cropped up in 1881 and again in 93, and on one of those occasions he sketched a duet for the lovers based on material from the fantasy overture, but he never orchestrated it and ultimately gave up on the project, perhaps realizing how difficult it would be to surpass his orchestral work on the same subject. Seldom in Tchaikovsky's music are form and content as well-matched as in Romeo and Juliet. The contrast between family strife and the lover's passion ideally lends itself to sonata form, with two dramatically contrasted themes. The conflict assures a fierce and combative development section. Tchaikovsky begins, as Balakirev recommended, with solemn and fateful chords that suggest the calm, knowing voice of Friar Lawrence. 
The street music is noisy and action-packed. The famous love theme begins innocently in the English horn and violas. It was one of Tchaikovsky's boldest moves to save the big statement of this great melody, fully orchestrated and greatly extended, the way most listeners remember it, for much later at the climax of the recapitulation. The lover's music returns once again in the coda, signaled by the timpani's dying heartbeat, where it sounds cold and lifeless. Program notes by Philip Pusher on Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. <laughs>